Hey iHub listeners, Meg Rowley here. Today we're excited to kick off a new podcast series, The Top Three Things, with our host, James Oldroyd, professor at Brigham Young University. Today, James will be interviewing Clint Reed, founder and CEO of Zonos. They will be discussing logistics of cross-border business, more specifically, how Clint helped create a company to simplify international e-commerce. So my name is James Oldroyd. Welcome to the Top Three Things. My guest today is Clint Reed, the CEO and founder of Zonos. Uh, Clint, it's great to have you with us today. Thanks, James. Yeah, happy to be on. Great. So tell us a little bit about your company. Zonos is a we're a technology solution, and we calculate import duties and taxes on goods that are going into other countries. And we do that for the actual seller of the goods. So an e-commerce company, let's say in uh, the United States that's selling to Canada, traditionally those duties and taxes are, they're getting calculated and still are at time of customs clearance. We do that at time of e-commerce checkout. And if it's not done at time of e-commerce checkout, and if the customer can't pay for it there, their experience is complete opposite of a domestic customer in the U.S. that buys something on Amazon. Their experience is they have to pay those duties and taxes when it arrives. So the driver shows up with a, a COD, a collect, collect on delivery, and asks for an additional $30. So we help solve that whole issue by helping the e-commerce company. That's great. So in the U.S., we don't do COD a lot. I know it's common in, in other countries. And you just, you're taking the uh, uncertainty out of all of that, right? You're giving a, a number up front. Exactly. So if the shopper that's outside the United States or outside of any country for cross-border decides not to make the purchase because they just don't know how much it's truly going to cost in the end, or they don't buy regularly and they get surprised and they're like, wait, I already paid for this. And then they say, I don't want to pay it. And they get stuck in customs and the business in the U.S. ends up having a credit card charge back that they will not win and they will lose it because the goods never truly got delivered to the door. So it's, yeah. it, it can be risky for the U.S. business and it's a miserable experience for the international shopper. So it really seems like a brilliant idea. You know, you talk about unmet needs. This is clearly one of those unmet needs. How did you pinpoint this? You know, where, where did the idea come from? Yeah, so I had the opportunity, luckily, to work at uh, DHL Express. They do uh, a lot of international shipping and was an account manager, sales, sales rep there. And then afterwards, after about four years, I went to UPS and was an international, just an international specialist there. So I would assist the, the normal sales rep in closing their, um, their international deals. And so that's how I got the experience. I would see e-commerce sellers in particular. I would try to explain to them all about this, right? Duties, taxes, brokerage fees, and you know, their eyes start glazing over to the point where I had one customer turn to me and say, yeah, no, I'm turning it off. I'm not going to sell internationally anymore. And so yeah. experiences like that made me realize that um, it really wasn't a logistics problem. Like UPS could get the package there. It yeah. was a technology problem, right? That these e-commerce companies don't have the ability to at scale calculate import duties and fees to 200 different countries for a thousand, 2000 SKUs, sometimes hundreds of thousands of SKUs. It's overwhelming for them. And so I seized on that opportunity and, uh, you know, just built a small prototype that would help with taking the international order online and went out and started selling that. Yeah, I love it. So, and then as you built the infrastructure, I mean, once you've done it for a SKU, it, it seems like it's a very scalable business on your end. 
Yeah, it, it is. I mean, it's uh, it's still very even difficult for us because every SKU has a different SKU number. So the SKU numbers actually don't help us. And then everyone has a different description of their goods, which also doesn't help much because each good has its own tariff, right, applied to it. So we have built in some ability to do auto classification of goods for harmonized codes. So we can then push that through our calculator for duties and taxes. So yeah, we've definitely made it scalable. Like a customer on Shopify can just go to their app store, download our app, install it, and be up and selling globally within, you know, an hour. So it's taken about 10 years to get to that point. But uh, yeah, it's starting to feel a lot more scalable than it did at the beginning. Yeah, that's great. So because you of your unique position, you know, sitting at the crossroads of a lot of international business, I think you have, you know, a unique perspective. Tell us a little bit about the difference between international business and cross-border business. Yeah, so I'm usually, I, I get asked all the time, you know, what, what do you do? And you, typically when you're thinking about international business, you're thinking about doing business in a certain country. So uh, warehousing in Europe and doing distribution inside the EU or, you know, getting a second office in uh, Canada. Cross-border involves the good moving directly from the seller to the buyer and not necessarily to the distributor, right? So it's a direct sell, kind of like I was giving the Shopify example where uh, you have an online store, you sell women's clothing, and the shopper's now buying directly from you. So the, a cross-border transaction is occurring just between those two parties, which makes it a lot more complex. So cross-border is definitely uh, falls under that international bucket, but a lot of people that are familiar with international are not familiar with cross-border and vice versa, right? I'm not as familiar with doing international business as I am with uh, really helping facilitate trade between two different entities with you know, low-value goods. Yeah. And so, you know, it seems like the the internet's been key to getting that growth of cross-border business. Have you seen, you know, is this an exponential increase over the last few years? It's growing at a faster rate than domestic. So in the United States, cross-border is growing faster than just normal e-commerce. And that's because more and more individuals outside the U.S. are having disposable income and they are purchasing, wanting to get goods, you know, especially from U.S. brands. And so that has helped drive that. They've kind of done it in spite of the situation, right? So it's growing. There's been major technological advances with e-commerce. There has not been with cross-border, like the actual customs clearance, the logistical movement. That part's still very broken, but it, it sure seems easy at first, yeah, for an international buyer just to arrive at a website and buy. And so it is growing in spite of the situation for sure right now. Yeah, good. So tell us, uh, what's the state of global trade? Right now, I'll kind of give you the perspective from an e-commerce standpoint that what countries are starting to do right now, and I'll, I'll start with Australia. Australia came out with a law where first off, anything under a thousand Australian dollars. So I don't know about 800 US dollars, just doing that off the top of my head, but anything below that number would go into Australia duty and tax free. Like it would just get cleared. There's no tax on it. It's called a de minimis value. The United States has a de minimis value that's really high, which is why U.S. shoppers, we don't experience this same problem. So Australia, they're seeing all this revenue, right? That's coming from Amazon and going into their country and they feel like kind of competing with their retailers at an unfair advantage because their retailers have to charge sales tax, domestic sales yeah. tax. So they came out with a law where the uh, tax needs to be reported by and remitted from the overseas entity. 
if they sell over a certain amount. So the moment that that law came out, Amazon and other big retailers or even medium-sized retailers have to start on a quarterly basis remitting the tax directly. And so this is outside the whole customs process, right? It's really strange because usually this is getting collected by the customs agents. This is now actually happening through just the normal tax channel. You just have to, on a quarterly basis, remit your tax. Say, I did this much in sales. And it was wildly successful, like for Australia, like way more than they thought. Because honestly, U.S. companies, I think, are very honest with their dealings. And so it was... Is it self-disclosed? Then you, I self-disclose, here's my earnings and here's the tax. Yes, yes. And they have some mechanisms in place for penalties or, you know, yeah. maybe shut you down for imports if they feel like they catch you. And then New Zealand came out with a similar law with its own flavor to it just uh, about a year after that. And this was about three or four months ago. So that's what's going to continue to happen is these countries are going to try to find ways to get tax revenue outside of the normal process. And yet then you still have the duty that's getting collected when it gets imported. So yeah, it's not necessarily getting easier. It's becoming different. Yeah. So then again, just to clarify, so that happens up front, similar to a sales tax, but then you still have the duties and and all of the other stuff that would normally happen on the, on the back end. So this is, it's, increasing the complexity. Yeah. So if a company you're selling to someone in Australia, now you have to collect the tax, which is easy. It's 10% GST to Australia, but then you still have the duty. And so that it's like, well, I'll collect the tax, but now you have to pay duty in certain circumstances. Well, it's a mess. Like it really, the whole law, I mean, we have a post on this that are just huge pages explaining how this works and it can become very difficult to know exactly how you fit into this if you're a retailer. Yeah. And I'll actually grab those links and put them up with the podcast so that our listeners can go and read. It's a a really a lot more complex than it used to be. Yep. So what does technology look like in the future of global trade? So right now, and I'm, I'm thinking, you know, 10 years down the road plus, today funds are getting collected and remitted typically even for the import for the duties, right? By the mm-hmm. broker and by customs agents. What I see more as, as e-commerce evolves and the ability for e-commerce platforms or technology providers to calculate these amounts up front It really, if it's trusted, right, if the ability to figure out what the import duty is and the import tax can be a trusted number all the time, I see it getting to the point where that money is getting directly remitted right to the government at the time of the transaction versus the time of the customs clearance, or at least before it clears, soon after, you know, once it ships, which could actually end up taking out some middlemen with customs and brokers. I would say that the majority of people in that field probably wouldn't think that this would happen. But if a, if a government can feel like they're going to get their revenue in a trusted way, in an auditable way, why wouldn't they just trust what was already collected at the time of the transaction instead of waiting for customs clearance and all the amount of effort that goes into that. And customs can you know, focus a little bit more on the uh, restricted items and things that are going to the country versus trying to always collect and remit the funds on the import. So yeah. it, it'll be interesting to see. It's definitely going to be impacted by the ability to calculate duties and taxes, even to the point where just image recognition of, of items and calculating what the import tariff is, is going to become mainstream. That's awesome. Tell us a little bit about brokers and agents. Say they are disintermediated, as you're suggesting. What kind of a cost savings would that be? Like, what's their involvement? What's their role? The customs is right there. It is a government agency. They are a government agent. Brokers are not. They're licensed by customs to calculate what the duty and tax is. Typically, it depends on the country. Sometimes countries, they force the customs to also do the brokerage and the clearance. But in a lot of countries, like let's just say Canada, any Canadian citizen can 
start up their own brokerage firm and they can calculate what the import duty and tax is and they would collect that money and remit it to um, Revenue Canada and charge a fee to do that. So there's tons of little brokerage firms that do that. And then UPS, for instance, is the largest brokerage firm in the world. They have their own brokerage firm in Canada. So they're brokering their own packages and charging, just to give you an idea on like the cost on a low value good, like a $100 t-shirt going into Canada, brokerage fees, and then them having to collect the money and then them having to upfront it to customs. Like they'll charge probably 50 to $60 in fees alone. To wow. clear it. It's like, it's absurd. It's just totally broken. And it varies based on, you know, if it's going ground, if it's going air, but the brokers, it's been very lucrative because prior to e-commerce, these weren't really, this fee structure wasn't that prohibitive to, to buying, you know, higher value goods. But as, as more and more e-commerce transactions are moving, it doesn't align very well. So there are logistics providers that are trying to do better consolidations and free, you know, improve this process with a broker clearing, you know, a, a big shipment full of individual shipments instead of a bunch of individual shipments at once. But um, that's the difference between the broker and the, the customs agent. Yeah, that's really interesting because if you think about it, you know, a 20-foot container, that's easy for a brokerage agent to handle, right? Full of uh-huh. you know, thousands of T-shirts. But when you start doing ones and twos, it, get, it becomes much more complex. You, could, you can charge a couple hundred dollars for a container, but you can't charge. Right. It, it's very expensive on single items. And yet, if you look at it, as people get more and more comfortable shopping across borders, that's the volume that will grow. Exactly. We're going to see more and more, especially as these like India right now is going to be buying more and more cross-border. And so there's these up and coming countries where there's more disposable income and they want goods from other countries. It's just going to increase. But that doesn't, like you said, it's, it doesn't scale really well like it does with a container load. They only had to classify one item on that container load, the T-shirt, yeah, yeah, right? Much, there might much. be five goods in a single shipment that's under $200. And that's where technology is going and needs to go in order to improve and streamline this, this whole process. Yeah, and the automation you're talking about is essential there. Okay, so if you had one piece of advice for you know, a business that's thinking about doing cross-border, what would you say to them? So as much as all of that sounded complex, honestly, what I would say is just do it. I mean, you're probably going to fall on your face a little bit, but you can just get started by selling goods online, still letting the customer pay when it, when it arrives and just dip your toe in the water to get started. Don't overthink it, especially if you're just getting going. If you're a larger retailer and you haven't been doing it, that might be a different story. You know, you, you might not want to test out with all your current customers opening up countries that, well for getting a a whole big batch of new customers that think your brand's amazing, you open up a new country and they're super unhappy. But for small, small retailers, I would definitely say, you know, go out there, give it a shot. There are definitely providers like us and other providers like that that can help with the technology aspect to make it a whole lot less painful. But I wouldn't say that us nor anyone else is going to take away the, uh, the pain completely. However, it can become a big percentage of your, of your company. And long-term, your competitors that are outside the United States they will start stealing your customers in the United States. Mm. You have got to compete with them and don't be blinded by that your market's just big enough in the US. There is a huge market outside the US and you also need to compete with the companies that are trying to get your customers that are in it. They're going to get better and better at it because cross-border is going to grow and you'll be way behind the eight ball if you don't at least get going. Yeah. So is there a specific example you could give of a company that you've helped that you've really seen just take off as they're charting that and figuring it out? Here's an interesting example. We work with a company that sells pinball parts. I mean, pinball itself is an American game. 
right? Why would you be selling pinball parts internationally, right? Wouldn't that be the first thing you would kind of ask yourself? Like, well, if this yeah, is a U.S. product, what's the market? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, the few pinball machines that are outside the U.S., which there's actually a surprising number, you know, of people that actually buy them or expats or whatever that have pinball machines. If the pinball machine breaks, where can they get a replacement? Yeah, interesting. Only one country, right? Almost 50% of this company's revenue comes from outside the United States and wow. they do pinball replacement parts. So, you know, you need to, don't just assume somebody doesn't want your widget or your good. And so that by opening up and expanding outside the United States, there is absolutely opportunity to grow. And it, and it can vary by product and industry. And if you have super highly restricted items, it might be high barrier to entry, but also might be big opportunity. So, yeah. Well, thank you. That's uh, that's really interesting. And it's, I think that's great advice. It was great to have you on the show today and, and thanks for your input. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks for having me on, James. Thanks for tuning in. If you're interested in checking out some of the tools discussed in today's episode, check out our website, internationalhub.org. We hope you'll join us again soon.